I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On August 8, 2007, seven-year-old Adriana Hutto drowned in her pool in what seemed like a clear accidental drowning, not uncommon in Florida, but a surprise witness would quickly come forward and accuse Adriana's mother of her murder. So is this a case of an accident or was this a murder? This is episode 13, The Amanda Lewis Story. really good to see you today, even if it's just on Zoom. I prefer to see you in person, but I'll settle for this to keep everyone healthy. That's correct. We're doing our part to stay safe and keep everyone else safe. So Amy and I are doing this via Zoom for the time being. But I miss you, Megan. I miss you too. Okay. All right. So (laughs) we have a couple of exciting things today. I'm really excited to announce that we have a new patron. Oh, we do. And who might that be? Well, let's give a big thank you to Tiffany Kay from Louisiana. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks, Tiffany. And we hope you enjoy this episode. So today's episode is one that was actually suggested to me by one of our listeners. So we have a listener who has been with us from Direct Appeal since the beginning of Direct Appeal and who is also listening to Women in Crime. And she's written in with a couple of helpful emails and insightful tips. And she suggested the Amanda Lewis case, which I had heard of, but again, didn't know very much about. And then I started looking. A lot of my suggestions come from my mother. So I started looking into this case and I became really interested. So I want to thank Michelle 
And we hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope everyone else does. So, okay. Amanda was a 27-year-old single mother who was a healthcare assistant at a nursing home at the time, uh, and she was working during the evenings, and she was living with her two children in the small town of Esto, Florida, which is bordered to the north by Alabama. But I looked at Esto, and the population is about 375 people total. (laughs) Is that even possible? I didn't know it was, but yes, this is the... When we talk small town, this is small town America. Amanda was living with her two children, Adriana, age seven, and AJ, age six at the time. Adriana had ADHD, and so at times she could be rambunctious, as described by Amanda, and quick-tempered, even though Amanda said she was a good child. That being said, we'll talk a little bit more about Amanda's relationship with Adriana because it was a little bit more complicated. For example, Amanda was in the National Guard earlier around the time Adriana was born, and she was called up. So when Adriana was a small child, she was separated from her mother for quite some time. And I think it was something, you know, several months close to a year where Adriana lived with Amanda's family. And so Amanda said that when she returned, she was very slow to bond with Adriana. She said it was a difficult bond. And Adriana was a difficult child. If How you will. old was she when her mom went away? Was she like a toddler? You she say? was a toddler, okay. yes. And Amanda at the time would have been about 20. So she was young as well. She was a young mother, too. So Amanda describes AJ as being the much easier child. And while she described him as being easygoing and she said that she was harder to bond with Adriana, she also said that she loved her children. And she thought they had a pretty good life. She said she was happy and she thought overall they were happy. If you look at the photos, and there's a lot of photos on this case, and we're going to talk about them as we go through. If you look at the photos of the outside of the house, you can see that it looks like a modest home. Nothing fancy, but certainly a decent home. The inside, however, would tell a very different story as far as investigators were concerned. And we're going to come back to that because that's going to play an integral role in the evidence against or the case against Amanda. Amanda had also bought a small above ground pool for the kids. And that's going to be really important to this story. So it wasn't a full above ground pool. It was one of those inflatable ones. And it was about four feet tall. Actually, it was four feet tall. She had a ladder for the pool, I want to mention, but she had the ladder locked in the shed. So if you look at the photos, you'll see she had a big yard. There's a pool. And about, you know, it looks like maybe 20, 25 feet from the pool is the shed, which contained the ladder and some other floatable toys for the pool. On August 8th, 2007, Amanda Lewis says that her kids were playing outside before she was going to take them for back to school shopping. Amanda had gotten off the night shift. She came home. She said the plan was that she was going to take them shopping. They wanted to go in the pool. And she said, no, you're not doing the pool right now. I have things to do in the house. And basically, she describes showering and doing some couple other things to get ready, as you would probably after a long shift. And the kids asked, okay, well, can we play outside? And so Amanda said, of course. And so her kids are playing outside. She does, you know, a couple of things to get ready. And her son, AJ, came in and said, told her mom that Adriana was in the pool. But she didn't really think that, according to Amanda, she said she didn't really think Adriana was in the pool. She said she thought he meant like Adriana's playing near the pool. And so she was like, 
just just go get her and tell her to come inside. We're going to go. Remind me their ages again. Adriana's seven okay. and AJ at the time is five or six. Okay. It just helps to put it in context. Right. Because okay. I, I read a couple different stories and one he was five and one he was okay. six. They were very close in age. Mm-hmm. So five to six. My kids are almost the same exact age. So that That's helps right. try to think about how one would say something or not. But Okay. On. And so she says, just go get Adriana and come inside. And she said she didn't realize it till he was like, no, Adriana's in the pool. And then she ran outside and she saw her daughter basically floating in the pool. And she says that she ran outside. She grabbed Adriana. Um, she calls 911. She said that Adriana was purplish. And you can listen. She, she did start to administer CPR. She was panicking. Or, you know, if you think she wasn't panicking, it's a faked panic. But I will say the 911 call, which we do not use to judge people's guilt, sounds to me very much like a panicked mother. She was yelling, my daughter's in the pool. She's purple. I don't think she's breathing. Help me. Please come. What do I do? What do I do? So if you want to listen to the call and and see what you think about it, I would encourage you all to do that. First responders showed up and administered CPR because Adriana was alive. She still had a pulse and she was transported to the hospital. They worked on her for quite a while. They said she had a pulse for a while, but they couldn't sustain the pulse. So after, uh, you know, an hour or two working on her in the hospital, unfortunately, Adriana died. So what happens? Investigators first believe that Adriana, that this was an accidental drowning. So let me also describe the pool area had a little red wagon next to it. It was pushed up right against the pool. So what investigators really first believed was that Adriana probably stepped onto the wagon and went into the pool head first, maybe hitting her head and drowning. It seemed like a pretty likely conclusion that, hey, this is an accident. And like I said before, this is a common way that kids in Florida actually pass away. Did she know how to swim, do you know? So here's, and that's a good question, Amy. So many different accounts here. Some people say that Adriana was afraid of the water. Some people say that she loved to swim and that she just didn't like to go under the water, which maybe, I I don't know. I don't have small children, but I think that's a thing, right? That some kids don't like to go under the water. Mm -hmm. And then there's pictures that they've used. They showed pictures of Adriana like on the beach playing near the water. So it depends on who you ask. And Mm -hmm. I believe Amanda said that Adriana liked the water enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So was she afraid of the water? It depends on who you ask. While Amanda is there and while all of this is happening, she's got AJ. Amanda's mother and her stepfather, Chuck Burns, with whom Amanda was not very close, came and took AJ from the scene while Amanda stayed with the sheriffs. Mr. Burns called the sheriff's office about an hour after he got AJ and said AJ had something to tell them. AJ was interviewed just a few hours after Adriana died. And what he told the sheriffs was that basically... Mama threw Adriana in the pool and dunked her and held her face down. Wow. Yeah. So he would repeat this a couple of times and he would specifically say, just so you know, he would specifically say dunking. And I would definitely encourage listeners to go ahead and watch. You can see the footage of AJ's interview with the police officers. And, and, you know, they would ask him, what was he doing and what was what was Adriana doing? And he said that Adriana screamed, AJ, call the police, which we can talk about that in a little bit. So why? Why would this have happened? AJ said that Adriana had gotten in trouble that morning because she got into the Windex Mm -hmm. and police confirmed fingerprints on the bottle of Windex. But Amanda says that, that, yeah, that happened. I was mad at Adriana. She did get into a Windex, but it was a week earlier, and I did not kill my daughter because she got into the Windex. 
You know, AJ um, described other factors of that day. So the police said that, you know, he was reliable because he described some men, I guess, working on the power lines outside of their house. And the police confirmed that that happened that day. And so the police gave a couple of reasons or things that happened as reasons why they determined that AJ was reliable. But AJ's story changed several times during the interview, sometimes even the number of times that Amanda dunked Adriana or when she did it or what happened before it. AJ's point of view also, he describes being at one point outside of the house so he could see it. Then at another point, he says he was inside the house. They also, he also said that he was playing near a tree from which the view would be extremely obstructed. So when he showed, you know, investigators where that tree was, they realized that he couldn't see it or that he wasn't even tall enough to see this. Did he have any learning disabilities like his sister? So I didn't read specifically about learning disability, but I did see like his his emotional, like his maturity. They said even though he was six was more on par with a four-year-old. Because I was going to, I was going to say I could see a four-year-old four-year-old would be more likely to make up a story. I have children that are five and six. I don't even think my five-year-old would make up a story like that. So that's, it's, it's. So what you mean is you think it's more likely, it seems truthful because you don't think you're. I don't, so you can't trust children's, right? We can't trust eyewitnesses in general, but particularly children, but I'm comparing it to my own children. And I can't imagine, I think my children would understand the seriousness of making that allegation. A four-year-old would not understand that if I say this, mommy goes away and this is a big deal. A five-year-old, a six-year-old, I think would be able to connect that if I make up this lie, this is bad. Okay, well, maybe this is a good point for us to enter this discussion. And what I would ask you is one thing. First of all, Amy, what in terms of eyewitness identifications, are they problematic? How problematic right. are they? So this is a bit different because we're talking about an eyewitness who's talking about seeing an event, not saying that's the person in the lineup, right? Okay. So when we talk about eyewitness errors, we know that over 75% of wrongful convictions contain an eyewitness error. But again, it's usually in the context of picking the wrong person out of a lineup. Okay, got it. So this is a little different because there was, you know, he knew the quote unquote perpetrator, right? But with children, we do know, number one, that they, the suggestibility is very high. So let me ask you, you said the stepfather had a strange relationship with Amanda. Ooh, Amy's so, already, she's I mean, already picking up on where I'm going with this. Put it this way. If you ask a child a leading question, that is very damaging. It could have been something, uh, you know, the stepfather could have said, are you sure it wasn't mommy that held, that dunked her in the water? Oh, the word dunked? Oh, yeah, mommy did it. That makes sense. Right. Right. And, and then all of a sudden his memory is getting like rewritten. Right. There's all these different okay. things we know can happen with memory, especially in younger children. So Amanda, interestingly, after this also passed a lie detector test and she passed it with flying colors. But authorities pressed forward with their investigation. Now we know lie detector tests are considered unreliable, but you can bet anything that if Amanda had failed that lie detector test, it would be an entirely different story yep. as opposed to passing. When they pass, there's usually this thing that, you know, that they'll say, well, anyone could pass a lie detector. Not of evidentiary value, value. right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, okay, so Amanda passed a lie detector test, but authorities pressed forward with their investigation. Authorities also found out that when Amanda was a teenager, she had a 17-month-old baby boy named Alex who died. And so they were looking at this as a very big red flag. Uh, this is a mother who has two small children that died. 
Now, it was pretty clear from the evidence and from, you know, the autopsy and examination of her baby that he died from a seizure disorder, which also, if you think about it, might have something to do with Adriana. So we don't know what if it's possible that she had any disorders as well. But it's it certainly raises the, the possibility, but it raised the big red flag for them. I mean, they, they looked at it as indicative. Like, this is a woman who has a pattern of two children I mean, dying. that is some crazy bad luck right there. So... It absolutely is. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, they have really honed in. Amanda Lewis is, to them, investigators think that they have evidence, you know, uh, and I'm going to talk more about what they presented at trial, but they are pressing forward. They've charged her. She is going to trial. So what happens before the trial, as which happens a lot before trials, is that the prosecutor offered Amanda Lewis a plea deal to manslaughter with a 10-year sentence. But Amanda refused and went to trial and told her attorney, I didn't do it. I am not pleading guilty to killing my daughter and I'm going ahead. Good for her. If she's innocent, good for her. Exactly. And, you know, innocent people do tend to turn those plea deals down because they think I've got nothing to hide. I want my day in court. I'm going to prove this. So they go to trial in February 2008, and seven-year-old AJ was the star witness at Amanda's trial. And I have to tell you, you have to go ahead online and look at this for everyone. It is heartbreaking, this moment, whether or not you think she's guilty or not. They bring AJ in, and he was just the most adorable child, just so you know. Mm-hmm. And they have him sitting in the box, and he's you know looking nervous. You he's know. living with Amanda's parents at this point? No, I'll, I'll get to that, Sorry. but he actually was removed from the family. So AJ comes in and he didn't recognize his mother at first. He hadn't seen her in about six months and he was asked to like, is your mom in the courtroom? There were a lot of people in the courtroom. He's a small child. He was nervous. I think he just didn't know that his mom was there. And so he said, no, my mom's not here. And they said, where's your mom? And he said, she's in jail. And then I think it was the prosecutor who actually like pointed out Amanda and said, is that your mom? And so he looked over and when he realized it was his mom and he said, yes, he started to cry and she started to cry. And it was just, I mean, it really was probably the most emotional point. He really cried. He was having a hard time. And even when he was testifying, I think there was a lot of things going on here. The poor kid, I felt really bad for him. So AJ gave the account that Amanda had held Adriana's head underwater, similar to what he said in the first interview, but the defense was able to cross-examine him and show that AJ's account of what happened changed several times. So we have about 13 different stories from AJ, just to put it out there. AJ's account of what happened actually changes several times, and the defense said uh, she had a public defender and he was on a documentary that I watched, said, you know, we felt, I felt pretty good about it because I thought, you know, we showed like he's a child, he's not reliable. And he said this, but then he changed it. At one point, he even said like, we went to the park and then mommy dunked her after the park, but they'd never gone to the park that day. You know, he had different accounts. And so the defense felt pretty good about that. But regardless, they had AJ as the star witness. Who else came to trial? Well, Amanda actually testified as well. But from everything I saw, her testimony was pretty insignificant. She told the same story that she's told. Amanda's never changed her story, by the way. She says exactly what happened over and over again. And resolute, I did not murder my child. But who else testified? Well, the police and other responders would testify. 
about Amanda's house. So they described a house that was filthy. They said the kids' room were urine-soaked and lacking toys and other kid materials. And this was sort of an odd thing. There's two things about this. First of all, this was odd because Amanda said the toys were in the shed because the kids were being punished for not putting them away. So she took them and she put them in the shed. When you look at the photos of the shed, you're going to see there's no toys in there. But there's also no toys in the house. So this is an interesting point. Um, and I want, that catches her in a lie as well? It might. Mm -hmm. It might. Uh, I read a lot. It's interesting because I read a lot of blogs around this and a lot of like what people's opinions were. And a lot of moms were like, you know what? I threw my kids toys out one time because I was so mad they weren't taking care of it. And other people said, well, you saw that they actually had a lot of pool toys. So maybe they just didn't have many toys inside the house. Maybe they were outside play kids. Mm -hmm. I don't know which way you look at this. You can't judge a mother based on that, I don't think. Well, we shouldn't be judging guilt, certainly, based oh, on that. Absolutely about not. A, a guilt about a crime. But right. the second problem, I would say, is the photo of the children's room. So it looks pretty bad to me. It's, you know, their sheets are all off the bed. She says the reason that the room smelled like urine was because they were bedwetters. She said Adriana in particular was a bedwetter, and she was always mm -hmm. taking the sheets off, always cleaning them. So that's why you have bare mattresses. It looks, uh, you know, like the walls, the paint's kind of coming off the walls, paint chipped. The room looks extremely dirty. And I mean dirty, not just messy. Like, I don't know, there's stuff all over the floor. It looks, it doesn't look like a room where you would want your child to sleep. Mm -hmm. So is this trying to build a case as to why she's an unfit mother? But how does make, how being an unfit mother, having your kid live in squalor, how does that translate to killing your child? Though? Yeah, well, I think that they, they're trying to make this leap. And I also think we see this happen a lot, especially like when we look at this through the women in crime, the gender lens, right, is being a bad mom per se. And even our attorney at one point said, I don't know if she was the best mom, mm -hmm. but does that make her a murderer? Yeah, they're trying to make a connection. It's that too it big does. of a leap for me. It was also for them, the investigators say they became convinced that Amanda just didn't love her children or, or they actually thought she loved AJ, but they said they became convinced because of the way that she didn't care for her children, that she just wasn't a good mother and didn't love Adriana. I also read, by the way, online, I was looking at what other mothers and other people had to say. And a lot of people wrote online like, yeah, my house looks like that on a regular Saturday or my kids rooms, you know, they don't look so great and whatnot. Look for yourselves, make your own judgment. I personally thought that it did not look like a healthy environment for children. However, I would never use that to indict her mm -hmm. of murder or to mm -hmm. say that suggested um, her that she's a murderer. Mm -hmm. Amanda's mother also testified for the defense. Nope. <laughs> Amanda's mother, Brenda, testified for the prosecution. And this did was, she have a strange relationship with her mom? They had a relationship. And it seems that from the mother's testimony, there was some strain in it, but I don't know much about it, to be frank. Uh, but at trial, uh, Brenda said that Amanda demonstrated a very short temper with Adriana, but not with AJ. And so this didn't look good. You know, they're, they're putting up a couple of witnesses who are saying this. It's her own mother saying she wasn't a great mother to Adriana. Yes, to AJ. All right, a couple more things that happened at trial. They had a doctor from the hospital who described an emotionless Amanda upon finding out that Adriana was dead. The doctor says that Amanda didn't show any emotion and that she asked where the vending machines were. Could be shock. We cannot judge people's affect. We talk about this all the time. Some people laugh when they should be crying. Some people cry when they should be laughing. Some people go into shock. Some people cry hysterically. Always. And even her own attorney was interesting because he said that he had met with her and she seemed very emotionless as well. He said, but then I went to walk away. She's walking down the hallway. He's like, and I hear her crying down the hallway. He's like, so I, I, at first I thought, 
oh, she's, she is a little cold. He goes, but then I realized she just doesn't like to cry in front of people. She, she cries in private. But we're judging guilt because of that. So yeah, I agree. The affect is, mm-hmm. is problematic. Who else testified? Well, this is a problem. Colleagues of Amanda testified that Amanda was so annoyed with Adriana one day that she came into work and said, I could just kill her. Now, hold on. Apparently, Adriana had gotten a Sharpie and written on Amanda's car. And Amanda was really, really angry, as I'm going to say most moms would be, yeah. and comes in and says, I'm just, I could just kill my daughter. I've said that about both of my children. What mother has I'll admit it? it. I, I mean, come on. This is, I think this is a common thing. But at trial, it was made to be something so much worse than it actually was. And I watched some of the testimony. And one of the colleagues is like, I just told her, you can't say that about your kids. That's just, that's just horrible. And she was just so mad. Well, you know, she just wrote on her car with a Sharpie. Every parent says, right? Every parent says that. I'm hoping that she had someone on the defense for her. It sounds like everyone she knows is turning against her. It, yeah, it wasn't good actually for her. Did uh, she have anyone on her side? Character witnesses? People that could say she was a loving mom? I mean, some people did say that she was a, a decent mom or a good mom. It doesn't sound t- like that was... That wasn't really. what, you know, what was taken away from the jury though. No, because most of it is is mm-hmm. is not favorable to her. So... There was also the testimony of Lisa Ruckman, an assistant of the medical examiner, described bruises on the forehead and cheek, Adriana's forehead and cheek, that lined up with a hand over the girl's face, which is very damning. But let me just point this out before you go ahead and make a judgment. The medical examiner, Dr. Charles Siebert, he had been fired for a number of botched autopsies, and he had left the state and did not come back to testify. The woman who testified was his assistant. And she didn't do the autopsy. Not only did she not do the autopsy, she was his, uh, as I believe, like office assistant. I don't believe she had any medical training whatsoever. But they allowed her to testify about the bruises on Adriana's face. I hope the defense did a harsh cross on that. They did. And And the defense definitely did cross the defense. In all honesty, they did seem to do a good job. Did she at have a casting. public defender? She did. Okay. And but he seemed to do a great job on casting reasonable doubt. Um, you know, showing that these bruises could have been yes, could they have been from, you know, a face? Yes. But they also he was able to show that they also could have been from Adriana plunging into the pool and hitting her head, or responders grabbing. I was her, just gonna say, or one- her mother grabbing her, like anyone touching her face, anyone applying pressure to her. There were a number of people all over the scene. They were not able, there's no definitive mm-hmm. science which you can say, uh, you know, uh, that's a fingerprint on someone's face. And you know, when you're trying to do life-saving efforts, you're rough with that body because you're doing everything you can. And she was little and they were adults. So it's very possible that she easily bruised when they were trying to perform CPR or whatever else they were doing. It's very possible. So, um, you know, I thought that was- But re- a jury member, someone on the jury, could, I could definitely see them taking that and being like, case closed. I think so, too. I think that was probably very damning. You know, at first when I watched it, I thought she was uh, the I thought she was the medical examiner. And then I watched a, a, another documentary and I'll cite our sources in a little bit. And I realized I'm like, wait, she wasn't the medical examiner. She was the assistant interpreting what he wrote and what he found. Um, even before he took the stand, though, I believe he was also asked about like different interpretations. Like I think he had said one point it looked like maybe she hit concrete. And they said, well, wait, the pool wasn't on concrete. And he said, well, I don't know how to explain that then. You know, there was some confusion over how to explain these bruises. And I think this is open to interpretation. 
So nothing definitive. I think that probably the defense felt pretty good. I know that afterwards, they, you know, they did, they went to closing arguments and the jury deliberated for two hours over wow. a murder case and found her guilty of first degree murder and sentenced her to life in prison. First degree. First wow. degree murder, premeditated. They found, as the state said, that Amanda, and this was the implication, the state had said that Amanda was so annoyed with Adriana um, that she actually planned to teach her a lesson by dunking her head in the pool, and it just went too far. Which still doesn't even strike That's me as first, first degree, degree murder. Then, yeah, no. So she, but she was found guilty of first degree and sentenced to life in prison. Wow, she's in a Florida prison now. She still maintains her innocence. And so, what happened? Well, Amanda's family has since stuck by her. I don't know about her siblings, but her mother has come to her aid. And what her mother has basically said, I've since divorced Amanda's stepfather, Chuck Burns. And Amanda's family, including her mother, believes that Chuck Burns suggested the information to AJ in the first hour because mm -hmm. Chuck Burns was alone with AJ for the mm -hmm. first hour. So, something had happened where I said Amanda's mother and stepfather came. Something happened with Amanda's mom. She was describing like maybe she couldn't get her car to start or she, was, she wasn't on scene for an hour. So they had one solid hour alone. And then it was Chuck Burns who said that AJ had something to say. In an interview, Mr. Burns describes Amanda as a bad mother and says, I didn't think she was a good mother. Her kids were always hungry. They weren't well behaved. But he said, I did not tell AJ what to say. Rather, AJ told me what happened. This is the point of dispute now. And I think this is what comes in, what you were talking mm -hmm. about, though, whether or not this is, you know, is she, is this a suggestibility yeah. issue? Has the child ever recanted? No. Okay. So he's not. changed his story, but he's never actually he said, his, mommy he, didn't do it. Correct. He changed his story, and but he never said, my mom didn't do it, but he did change it different times. And it, at that point, actually, uh, I should say, after trial, AJ was adopted by another family and has been residing with another family ever Why since. Why is that? I don't know. It it does beg the question of, you know, what happened in her family. They had a lot of tension. I'm not sure if... Poor kid. Yeah, I have to say so as well. You know, I, I read something that his adopted family said he's done quite well since, and he's never had any contact with Amanda I was going to say, I'm assuming court ordered they're not allowed to... No contact whatsoever with Amanda ever since he testified at trial. That was the last time so she, she ever saw him. So she lost three children. And she says that she lost three children. She filed an appeal in 2010, but her appeal has been rejected at such time. Do you know what she appealed on? Because I'm wondering if what can be done in this type of case. There's no DNA there's, you know, other than the little boy recanting, I, what could really change for her? So I think, I mean, I think the appealable issue was the testimony of AJ, maybe the testimony of the medical examiner. Yeah. I think, I mean, I did have they to, have an, I'm sorry, did the defense call an expert that could speak to the suggestibility of children? No, I should say this. During trial, they had someone who did critique the interview of AJ as well, um, suggesting that AJ's interview was not done properly at all. It mm -hmm. wasn't the police department there fully admitted the people who interviewed AJ that they did not have any experience interviewing children. And who was in the room during the interview? I'm assuming no adults. That's that is oh, that illegal. So on his first, actually, that's the not true. The stepfather was okay. in on the first one. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, they said that AJ was, you know, that they said the interview wasn't done right. There was definitely a critique later on. And in, in her appeal, there was a critique of how AJ was questioned and how reliable AJ's testimony was. He was young. I don't think you could put... If there's no corroborating evidence, I do not understand how 
you can sentence this woman to life in prison. Oh, I, I have a, I have substantial problems with this case. So now we come to that point like where we talk about what, what do we think? After watching the documentaries, I've read every article I could find on this case, just so you know. I could tell you I would definitely, le- I mean, I would have absolutely acquitted her. There's, there's so much reasonable mm-hmm. doubt all over this. I don't think a six-year-old is reliable. I don't know what happened in the hour between when, or even an hour between when they called, but then a couple hours between mm-hmm. what happened then, you know, if there was some suggestion. I have no idea. You don't have a, a credible medical examiner here. I think this case reeks of reasonable doubt. And yeah. I, I actually believe that this is probably, if I had a lean, if I had a guess, I'm going, I would go with a wrongful conviction on Amanda Lewis. I could imagine being on the jury, though, and seeing a seven-year-old boy crying that ha- you have to feel like, why would this kid lie? Why would he, he just lost his sister. Like, I don't think people understand the psychology of children. And I think people feel that they have to give this kid the benefit of the doubt. Why would he lie? Yes, right. But, absolutely. I mean, if they had a, a quality expert up there who can talk about interviewing children and eyewitness stuff with children, I mean, I think if she didn't have a public defender and maybe could have afforded a better lawyer, they would have gotten a top expert in the field that would pretty much say this is... Well, of course, they didn't have money for experts in the way that people are going to. I think the public defender that she had thought, look, we showed that AJ was inconsistent Mm -hmm. over, you know, changing his story 13 times. Every time I asked him, he would ask him a question. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, so how many times is this? And he would change it. I think he thought, well, the jury clearly sees that you can't count on a Mm seven-year-old. But I think you're right, Amy. I think the jury just could not get over a child getting up there and saying, my mother did it and I saw her do it. Yeah, I think that was probably powerful. I also saw an interview that Aphrodite Jones did with one of the jurors, I believe the only juror that I've seen speak. You know, I have to tell you, he said, I just knew she did it because I didn't hear her say that she jumped in the pool or ripped the pool down or got in there. Like she didn't, she didn't get in the pool or rip it, it down. It was only four enough. feet high. How tall was she? She could have just reached over and grabbed her out. No, exactly. Also, I want to point out that was something that people had said about the uh, idea that Adriana drowned. Well, she was four feet tall. The pool was four feet tall. She couldn't drown. She would just stand right up. That's not true. Kids can drown in two feet of water. If you know, how, even if you know how to swim, like you always hear these, like you know, when my kids go to swim lessons and doesn't matter if you, if you could swim, you can easily drown in water that's much shorter than you. Right. I mean, obviously, I did some reading up on that. And you can drown. I mean, you can drown in water that is not deep at all. Mm-hmm. It is definitely possible to panic. Mm-hmm. It's possible you shouldn't even know she could stand up because she's you know usually yeah. in floaties. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that she did hit her head. So the suggestion by the defense, just so you know, was that Adriana took that red wagon. She stood up. They always talked about how you had to get the bugs out of the pool if you wanted to go swimming. So the defense said she obviously stood right up in that red wagon, leaned down to scoop the bugs out of the pool and went straight down and probably hit her head straight down and then was rendered unconscious or somewhat unconscious mm-hmm. and drowned. Yeah, That's something they would have been able to see in the autopsy. Right. If she had like. Well, but the medical examiner gave some very mixed evidence. And remember, he was fired during Mm -hmm. this time, fled the state. And that was or I don't want to say fled, Mm -hmm. left the state. And so we really didn't have much from him. Mm -hmm. So at the end, I think this is an inconclusive case. Yeah. Um, Amanda Lewis, again, says that she is innocent. She's given some recent interviews. I'm not sure what happens next because her appeal was denied in 2010, but I'm sure she's going to go to her next level of appeals Mm -hmm. at some point. 
it's this is just a hard case because like I said, no DNA. It's not that someone else is going to come forward and admit that they did it. This really just rests on this one little boy. The only thing I can think of is as he gets older and if he's in therapy, he, you know, he might somehow, you know, they do hypnosis now. There's some way he might recant. I've heard of stories where children recant, you know, like allegations of sex abuse and stuff like that. Uh, It's possible that AJ might recant at some point. Uh, One of the interviews I saw with Amanda, someone asked her, interviewer asked her how she felt about AJ and was she upset with him? She said, absolutely not. I would never be upset with him. I love my son. I will always love him. Mm -hmm. This is not his fault. So she's finding a way to make peace with it that way. And if anything new develops, we will come back to you and report back on this case. Thank you again, Michelle, for recommending it. Uh, Thank you so much, Amy. And we'll see you all next time on Women in Crime. Thanks, Megan. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include Killer Women with Pierce Morgan, the ABC documentary What Did AJC Murder of Seven-Year-Old Adriana Hutto, and True Crime with Aphrodite Jones. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.